So I just, I jotted down a note here. Dr. Pelkovitz was speaking about violence, and I just heard a really unusual statistic, which I couldn't believe, and this is not part of my class, but I just thought I'd mention it, is that by the age of 11, the average child in our country has seen 15,000 murders, most obviously all on TV and 99.9% fictional. But it was just shocking to me that that's how much violence occurs on our TVs, you know, and it was something that raised my antenna a little bit about what our kids are seeing. So most of what I'm going to share with you today is based on my experiences with students who have come through my office, parents who I've seen, and just some of the interactions I've had with them and have given me thought about this topic. The basic topic is recognizing the differences in our children. We often, I think parents have two, three, four children, and invariably they're very different from each other. They have different strengths, different weaknesses, but I think I often see that sometimes one or two of the children are just sort of left to their own devices and it doesn't necessarily, they don't succeed in the environment because there's one standard environment, and if the child isn't able to succeed in that environment, you know, I guess they sort of fall through the cracks, and it's really a very dangerous situation for the kids. So I have a couple sources which we'll look at, but mostly I'll just discuss some of my thoughts. So the first thing I thought about when thinking about this topic is a story that a child related to me a few years ago, four or five years ago. He had a little boy, and he came in on Monday. It was the day after the weekend, and he was just sort of distraught. He was getting in trouble. Typically all these stories happen when a kid gets in trouble, comes to my office, and instead of punishing them right away, I sort of, I like to talk out with the child, like what happened, what's going on. So he came to the office and just very, very sad, and I said, tell me what's going on. This is not like you. He said, well, this weekend I came home to my mom, and I was out playing with my friends, and I found something amazing that I wanted to show her. So he comes into the house, you know, screaming, you know, mom, I'm looking, mom, I got to show you this thing. And the mother's in the kitchen. She's doing something, and she hears him from the other side of the house, and, you know, she's screaming, no problem, come, I want, you know, what's going on, everything okay? And he says, yeah, I've got something I need to show you. And she's, you know, for the moment, tears, Timmy, he doesn't really show much interest in things. And he comes in, and the mother is all excited, and Timmy is beaming with pride. And he looks at the mother, and it's in his hand, and he opens it up, and it's this frog. And she is beside herself. She literally screams, get out of here with that thing. Take it outside, throw it, you know, get rid of it. Bring it back where it came from. I don't want to see that ever in the house again. Totally distraught, he runs outside and gets rid of this object. And I said to him, why was that, you know, obviously I knew why that was a tough situation. I said, why was that such a tough situation for you? He said, you know, it's the, you don't even know how long it took me to catch it, Rabbi Siegel. That thing was like running away and I had to like sneak up on it and then I came up with a plan. And here was this Timmy who, you know, I knew him. He, he's not the, he doesn't learn so well in a classroom. But he's not so successful at a lot of things he does, just a sweet boy. And he had really worked and been successful. It took a lot of information for him to figure out how to catch this frog. And he walks in with it to his house expecting feedback from his parent that this is something great. And because it doesn't fit in with the model that the mother um, had expected for the child, it wasn't an A on the paper or I don't know what he could have found that would have impressed her. Not only did she not give him positive feedback, he was, you know, his ego was slammed to the ground in this one area that he thought was successful. And to me, it was such a telling story of, you know, the fine points. It's, you know, hearing the story in retrospect, what kind of, how could the mother have not have missed that? But I think it's stuff like that we miss all the time. There are things that our children are very proud of and very, you know, they feel like they had an accomplishment and we don't highlight it for them. We don't give them the feedback that this is an amazing accomplishment because it doesn't fit on our radar screen. So with that, I just want to start looking at some of the sources. Um, throughout Genesis, throughout the, the book of Genesis, there are sibling rivalries left and right. We could have picked probably any of them and looked at them and highlighted some of the aspects of it. But I think Asav and, and Jacob um, is probably the most significant in terms of child rearing. So we'll take a look here at the first source. I'll read it in English. Feel free to read it in Hebrew if you'd like. And the boys grew, and Asaph was, was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now Isaac loved Asaph because he did eat of his venison, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now it doesn't tell us why Rebekah loved Jacob. Um, the rabbis continue and tell us that she had come from a house of, you know, of, I don't want to say where there wasn't as upstanding of parental 
influence, but she really understood the need to be a, a man of God and saw that Isaac was that and was very proud of him. Now, um, Esau, on the other hand, um, sorry, Jacob, Esau, on the other hand, was loved by Isaac because he, at that time, was bringing him food, and that was a very important thing. I mean, you can discuss why, but it's a very important thing for him that he was an old man at the time. Um, we know that he was blind, actually, um, and this was his son was taking care of all these specific details of his life, and this sort of was the model for him. And because, again, these fit into the parents' models um, of what they wanted from their kid and for their kid, uh, that's how their parental love was directed. Um, again, you know, going back to this a story from, from what happens in school, I have had many students, and I can think of one in particular, who was talking about their college choices with me. And she was saying, she was just very upset and she's nervous, super nervous about whether she'll get into Barnard. It was her, was their, was her top choice. I said, am I going to get into Barnard and I really want to go there? And, you know, the conversation lasted five, six minutes. And I said, do you want to go to Barnard? She said, well, not really. I, I don't even know where I want to go. What, well, so then why are you so nervous about getting to Barnard? Well, you know, my mom and my dad want me to go to Barnard. And they've been telling me that I'm supposed to go to Barnard since I've been six. And if I don't get into Barnard, so... My entire, you know, their vision for me and my vision of who I am has been completely shattered, right? Because here the parent, it's, it's, it's the frog story times 10. Because the frog story is one instance. I expect you to come with A's or, you know, something that I appreciate. And when you don't, when you come with a frog, I'm going to say you're out of my radar screen. This is, I expect you to go to college X. This is where, you know, we think you should be able to achieve. And then when the child doesn't make it, the failure that the child feels is a lifetime of failure because it's been a goal from you know fifth grade through high school. So that's seven years the child looks at him or herself and says, I can't believe I didn't do that. So I think a very important point to start off with is understanding what our expectations are of our children, meaning what our preconceived notions of success are. Because when we, without that, if we're not being self-aware, this is what I expect, this is how I see success, we're going to put that onto our child. And if our child doesn't fit our mold, and typically they don't, you know, they're our child, we have one personality, we probably married a spouse who has a different personality, um, and then we have a child who's either a blend or neither of the two. Um, and if we um, assume that the child is going to be the same as us, we're sorely mistaken and we're setting our child up for a tremendous amount of failure. Um, I think a very, very unique verse, source B, <clears throat> and something that highlights something I think that's, I never noticed it before. Someone pointed it out to me. And Jacob gave Asa bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. So Asa despised his birthright. Now, if you look at the Hebrew, it's harder to read in the English. I'll just point out to, for those of you who, who don't have the Hebrew fluency, it's actually five verbs in a row. It says, It's, it's a very unusual formulation. I actually tried to look elsewhere to see if I could find five verbs in a row. And I couldn't. I looked through, it's just this weekend in Genesis. See if I could find five words in a row. I couldn't find it. Um, my wife, who's a much better, um, has better fluency in, in, in the Torah, would probably tell me of another location. But what it highlights is, is that Asa was a very active person. I think we all recognize this personality. There are kids who can't sit still. They just can't. They're in the classroom, and they're doing stuff with their hands. They're kicking people. They're ju they just, you know, they need to get up and walk around. They're constantly doing something other than what they're supposed to be doing. And it's these kids that I think a lot of us see. You know, now there might be a diagnosis. Oh, it's ADD, ADHD, whatever it is. I, I don't know that it doesn't even have to be diagnosed. There are just kids who the formal classroom isn't the right setting for them. Now, I don't think that means that we just say, you know, forget about having a formal classroom setting for these children. But it is super important to highlight that this is just who they are. There are kids who are, their life is a verb. They're constantly doing, if they're not, if they're, if they're sitting passively and, and absorbing material, it doesn't happen. There's no such thing. They constantly need to be on the move. And I think this is what the Torah is highlighting with Asaph. Because to have this number of verbs in a row, it, it's, it's pretty unique. Um, so I think that that's, again, falls into this category. And again, you know, I just spoke about two points. One is that you have parents have these expectations for the kids, and the kid doesn't necessarily meet them. And then you have this kid who's totally out of whack. Forget about whatever expectations you have. You know, you'd like your kid to be able to sit and listen, and, and they can't do that. Dr. Mel Levine, Levine who's a very famous um, school psychologist, 
who speaks all over the country, something called Schools Attuned, which is trying to help educators to really understand the psychology, the psychobiology that goes on um, in our children's heads so that um, it can help them to better appreciate the difficulties and the challenges the students have, makes a very interesting point. He, he talks about um, touch being the quickest method of learning. I, I believe I've seen a lot of research the opposite way, but he thinks that, that through touch, it's the fastest connection to the brain. Um, and he says often that students who you find in schools, they're hitting. A lot of times you'll get sent, well, he can't keep his hands off anybody else. He's constantly smacking the kids, hitting, kicking other kids. And you call in and you're like, let's make a contract here. Please you know, keep your hands to yourself. Don't touch others. Only keep your feet on the ground. I mean, you make this whole contract. The kid goes back and there are consequences. Two days later, the kid's in your office. I mean, it's just no contract works with these types of students. And they don't mean badly. They just can't control themselves. And he suggests actually um, giving them something in their hand to keep them busy. So you have stress balls or you have little puzzles for them or they doodle. You know, we often grab a doodle off a kid's desk and, you know, what are you doodling here? And we look and it's a picture and we're very upset with the child. And the doodling is helping the child to concentrate. I myself in meetings will often take notes on the meeting just so I have something else to do with my hands. Because I, I fit into that category. If you give a child like this something else to do with their hands, it enables them to kind of, the material that they're supposed to be absorbing often goes in. And I find that's true. I give stress balls to, rarely, but to students like this, and invariably it helps them. They stop kicking because they're doing something else. Um, and not only that, they're not bothering the rest of the class, but they, they are learning a lot more. Um, and I think... You don't get to that answer unless you're able to break the notion of what we think that kid is supposed to be doing. You know, if you assume that every kid is supposed to sit in their chair and listen and take notes like they did when we were young, and I don't know, I didn't do it when I was young, but when every, you know, when, in your mind, whatever the mold is, it's never going to work. We as parents need to figure out what, what our vision is and realize that maybe that's not right for every child. Um, so I think that that's an, another important point. Um, Let's look at source C. There's a, now let's get to a little bit of what happened with Asav and, and, and Jacob. Um, this kid, anyone want to read? <laughs> I'm like in school. I'll get someone to read. You want to read? No? Go, someone can read. Go for it. Okay. Source C. This, go for it. See, yeah, this can be compared. This can be compared to two cars which go together. After they might turn and go, one can pass a dollar and the other had a bad smile. Thus, for 13 years, the two boys went to school together. After they reached the age of 13, one would go to Beige, Midrash, right. and the other would go to a place of innovation. Exactly. So the, this is a commentary on the story of Asaph and Jacob. And it says, first it gives us the first part of this source, says there are two flowers that grow together. I mean, you imagine in your head they're right next to each other. They're in the same soil. They get the same sunlight. They get the same water. And they basically end up, at the end, how could it be? One has this beautiful odor. One is magnificent. One is this, you know, statuesque flower, and the other one is smells bad. It didn't grow properly, and it's just, you know, it's it's not what it's supposed to be. And the rabbis want to know why. How could how could such a thing happen that they grew together? And it's unusual, but they give at the end here a bit of it. They said, you know, they were both raised in the same way. They would go to the house. They would they would go to the house of study. Same exact upbringing until the age of thirteen. And once they turned into adults, young adults, those differences manifested themselves. One went to house of study, Jewish study, and became you know our upstanding forefather. And the other one went to become an idol worshipper. Um, and what I think this is telling us is that you know we assume same is equal, and actually it's very often not. And you know, separate but equal, this is a different... Same is not equal when you have two different children because if you're giving each child the same exact upbringing, the same sort of attention, the same sort of behavioral modifications and responses, you're, you're actually bringing up the two kids very differently because the two kids are very different, in fact. So th that's the first piece that's highlighted. And that's, I, I think, it's almost common sense, but we forget about it. You know, and it takes a lot more effort to give each child their own specific behavioral plan. It's much easier, we, we as parents do our natural thing, the kids meet our expectations, and when they don't, we give them a consequence, but we give the same consequence, we're very consistent. That's very unhelpful to two very different students, to two very different children. So that's something that I think we often need to think about. Source D, 
And this is a very, very famous source um, in a book of uh, in the book of Mishle, um, which gives us sort of advice. Um, it's uh, Proverbs, um, and it gives us just ideas um, to help guide us. It says, "Teach a youth according to his nature." Right? Um, it's it's really an, an educational and parenting guideline, um, and has such a rich meaning in this very short sentence. Um, I think I, I you know I can highlight two pieces. I think what it teaches us that we have to find a way to reach each child on a micro level and on a macro level. So on a micro level, I'll just speak from an educator's perspective. Inside of our classrooms, for too many years, it's been a frontal lesson with a teacher at the board writing notes on the board and a student sitting in the class taking notes. And it's just that relationship. Maybe there's a question or two, that's the interaction. That doesn't work for, I, want, I don't even want to say many of our kids, for most of our kids. There are some kids who are standard learners, and they're great at it. There's a lecture, the teacher puts something on the board, they write it down, it, it, it's a smooth interaction. But there are some kids who are much more visual. You can't lecture the child. Most of what happens has to take place on the board, or at least a portion of the lecture has to be up there. Some people are more interactive. They need to feel the lesson for themselves. You need to, they need to experience their experiential learners. So I think that's on a micro level, just in our classrooms, finding ways for our children to succeed in the classrooms. And I think on a macro level, it's true. Sometimes the classroom isn't a place where a kid is going to succeed. I don't think that means you don't have kids in the classrooms. There's material that the kids need to learn, although studies show that I think 90% of the material we teach students they don't remember most of what they remember is how to be a good person and study skills and how to conquer problems. But I think we need the kids to be in the classrooms, but I think there are going to be students who don't succeed in the classroom. But we need to make them aware that there are other places that they can succeed outside the classroom, that there are other programs for, for them to be a part of. So let's say a student's a C student, they're just not the, you know an academic, they could be on the basketball team and be a star as a person, they could be in the play, they could be on student council, they could be you know, getting an A in the yearbook because they love using the computer. And you know something? A lot of those kids in their lives are gonna be very successful because our world isn't a world that is set up the way school is set up. School, you have to be a generalization specialist. You have to be able to be good in math, science, history, English. You know, In a Jewish school, you can throw in Bible, Talmud, um, you, you name it, and you have to be able to, to specialize in all of them. And our world is completely different. Our world enables you to specialize in things. You know, I'm great at computers. That's what I'm going to focus on. And I may have gotten straight Fs throughout school, but I have a knack for being successful with getting a computer to do what I want. It, it seems to share and work the same way my mind works. And I find that all the time, actually. I find that technology people in the schools that I've worked in, if you talk to them and you say, that's not, that's not a rule, but if you talk to them and say, you know, well, how were you in school? Were you, no, I was a joke. You know, I used to mess things up on purpose. I never did well in school, failed all my tests. I didn't even play on any teams, nothing. I was just always good at, you know, like figuring out the computer. And here they are, very successful, doing their thing, and everyone's very proud of them. I think we need to find a way to tell our kids that that can be the case, um, that they can be successful in a particular area. Because I think when we start to make them feel like you're not successful in this and you're not successful in this, they don't see themselves as a success in any way. And it really pulls down their self-esteem. I had a student in Ramaz, a school I formerly taught in in New York. It's, it's one of my, I have a lot of failure stories in teaching, but it's one of my success stories that I, that I love to point to because I think it highlights something absolutely amazing. She was just bouncing off the walls, constantly getting up. I gave her one of the balls, didn't work. Um, gave her, you know, could you, could you please be, as a high schooler, could you please be the person from the class who goes and gets me X? Could you, I, I gave her a million things to do. Nothing worked, literally nothing. And one day I, I realized that maybe I didn't have the answer. I called her over after the class and I said, Sarah, I'm trying to think not to share her name. Um, are, are there any classes that you're successful in? Tell me, because I want you to be successful in my class, and I want to know what's working in that class. So tell me, are there classes you're successful in? And she said, you know what, Rabbi, I'm very successful in history class. It's the only class I'm getting an A in. I said, history class? That you know, The teacher in Ramaz was like a no-nonsense guy. Const I mean, it was like the kids didn't even get to breathe. They would like have to come up for oxygen halfway through their notes and like... You know, get back in there. I said, what is it about history that you're so successful? She said, I am taking notes from the moment I sit down 
to the end of the class. I have no time to do anything else. I don't have time to get distracted. I don't have time to think about anything else. I'm taking notes from the beginning of the class to the end of the class. And I said, that's unbelievable. And you do well? Yes, I do well on tests. The teacher thinks I'm behaving, uh, and she, I am. I'm listening. So I said, well, how could we have that work in my class? She said, well, because my class is more of a discussion. It was a Jewish thought class with some textual. So, well, maybe I could be your class note taker. Okay, what, is it, you know, what, what would that entail? Well, I would just take notes about everything that happened in the class from the time the class started till the end of the, the class period, including like what was going on around the room. So she started taking notes like this, copious notes, three, four, five, six pages every day. It was like nonstop. And she started to thrive. She was getting A's on my test, participating, knew the material. Her parents were shocked. I was, it was like unbelievable. I called a faculty meeting just to tell them about this success, but please don't steal it because her hands are going to get tired if she's doing this in every class. Um, and I used to get these notes back from her, and they were fantastic. First of all, they were great for me because they weren't just about what the class was going, you know, what was going on in the class, which I then used to help my notes for the next time I taught the class. But they were, they were notes about what was going on in the class, like, you know, Jimmy raised his hand and you didn't call on him. This is the third day in a row. Do you have something against Jimmy? You know, Sarah keeps on trying to give you answers, but you always give her a harder time than you give David. And I was like, this is unbelievable. I, you know, here I am now getting this full feedback about what I'm doing in my class, and it's helping me. But more importantly, I found what helps her. And this is how she is successful in learning. Um, and I think that that was a, an eye-opening experience for me, that every student can be successful. She didn't mean she was getting A's in any other class. She probably just got A's in history in my class. And, but that was a very successful feeling for her. And I guarantee you that when she goes out, that's something she'll remember, that she found success in an area that I don't think she thought originally she could because I set things up for her. She actually helped me do it, but she helped me set things up for her that she would be successful. So I think that that's a pretty um, important point for us to remember, that there are always going to be kids who we have to find ways for them to be successful. Okay, now we get to the most important source. First of all, I have to see how I'm doing on time. 11-11, what time are we going to? Anyone have any questions? A lot of, you I mean, I was trying to put this together and make it with a couple major salient points, um, but I'm happy to answer questions. That's sometimes the easiest way to, to share um, feelings about this. But, uh, so if you have any questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, so let's go to source E. It's, it's one of the most famous sources for any educator, um, and I would encourage every parent to file this piece away. And um, I actually had a growing up, a principal who... Um, when I was going to his office once in a while, um, more than once in a while, um, he used to have this, this piece hanging on his wall um, in his office. Um, and it's funny, I don't think that I realized how significant it was that he had in his office. It always gave me a little bit of positive encouragement when I would see it um, as a student who was um, in his office uh, for doing something uh, that was not within the rules. But as an educator now, looking back, for him, he, you know, I've asked him, because he and I are close, and I said, you had that poster up, it was really a nice thing. He said, well, it was nice for the kids, but it was more importantly there for me, because I'm sitting there across from a kid who I've seen for the 10th time in, you know, 12 days, and I need to remember this. So let's look at this piece. Um, I'll try to, uh, I'll read it and, and highlight a couple pieces. Um, it's on the verse that says, and the children were brought up, that's the Hebrew there. As long as they were little, no attention was paid to the slumbering differences in their natures. Both had exactly the same teaching and educational treatment, and the great law of education, which we saw in Source D, teach a youth according to his nature, bring up each child, sorry, according accordance with its own way, was forgotten that each child must be treated differently with an eye to the slumbering tendencies of his nature and out of them be educated to develop his special characteristics for the one pure human and Jewish life. So it's interesting. This is actually a verse on what we're talking about here, Jacob and Esau. And at least in the world that I come from, we're very, very hesitant to criticize the forefathers and the foremothers. It's almost whatever we can possibly do to stay away from criticizing the forefathers and the foremothers, we do that. Not because I think we want to draw a blind eye to their foibles, but it's an attempt to keep them in some way on a pedestal. But the Torah itself didn't do that. The Torah itself was very obvious about the mistakes that different people made. Isaac 
you know, was not honest. Jacob learned that characteristic from his father. Um, you know, Abraham didn't always do the exact right thing. Moshe, you know, our forefather, yeah, you know, our leader of our nation, didn't always do the right thing. So this is a, a piece by Rabbi Hirsch, who was um, from, from Germany um, and responding to a lot of uh, what was going on around him with Jews leaving Judaism, was a very, very open-minded thinker. And here he's writing and he's criticizing um, Rebecca and Isaac. He's saying that they didn't necessarily notice the differences between their two sons. We, How could that be? They were so obviously different. We saw in the first verse, one is a hunter in the field, the other is uh, sitting and studying. For whatever reason, the parents sat there and didn't notice. Actually, if you look at that first line, no attention was paid to the slumbering differences in their nature. Our rabbis teach, Rashi, a very famous commentary, says he focuses on the no attention. And he says the reason that parents didn't notice the differences between the children is because they weren't paying attention to their children. They weren't involved in their lives as much as they should have been. Had they been more actively involved, had they been more present in the lives of their children, they would have seen these differences and might have been able to forestall this division between the, um, Jacob and Asa. So we'll continue on here. The great Jewish task in life is basically simple. One and the same for all, but in its realization is as complicated and varied as human natures and tendencies are varied and the manifold varieties of life that result from them. Now let's, we'll skip ahead. I don't want to run out of time. This is continuing this piece on the back page, you see. <clears throat> to try to bring up a Jacob and an Asav in the same college, make them have the same habits and hobbies, and want to teach and educate them in the same way. I'm sorry, I'm reading the underlined bolded parts only. You see where I am? For, for some studious, sedate, meditative life is the surest way to court disaster. So here, here he's criticizing Isaac and, and, and Rivka. He's saying... How could you possibly expect them, these two very different children, to follow the exact same paths? They're going to go to the same schools. They're going to go to the same types of classes. They'll sit in the same classroom with the same teacher and have the same parents treating them the same, giving them the same amount of attention. Given. But what else do you expect? You're courting disaster. You can't expect that every child, in fact, you probably can't expect that any child is exactly the same as the next one. And if you do, it's a recipe for failure. And you have not done, we have not done, as parents and as educators, a service to these children by putting them all in the same categories and expecting that they're going to thrive in the same sort of um, environment. He, he finishes up, and this is, you know, some of it's repetitious, but I think he's just, he's building his case against Isaac and Rebekah, which is an unusual thing to do. Had Isaac and Rebekah studied Asaph's nature and character early enough and asked themselves, how can even an Asaph how can all the strength and energy, right? We talked about that verse, the energy. Agility and courage that lies slumbering in this child be won over to be used in the service of God. Then Jacob and Asa, with their totally different natures, could still have remained twin brothers in spirit and life. Quite early in, life's, in, life, in life, Asa's sword and Jacob's spirit could have worked hand in hand. And who can say what a different aspect the whole history of the ages might have presented? I mean, that's an amazing piece there. I mean, almost like goosebumps. It's true. Think about the different course of history. Asaph, we're told, is the forefather of Amalek, who is considered the arch enemy, not just as a nation, but that peoplehood, that system of beliefs that this Amalek attacked the Jewish people when they were weary. They're, they just stand for the worst in the world. Um, we're taught Rabbi Soloveitchik, the great modern Orthodox Jewish thinker um, who was the head of Yeshiva University for some years, says that Amalek doesn't just represent that one-time nation. It represents all the evil that exists in this world, Nazi Germany, um, people who oppress people in other countries. Those types of people represent this Amalek. That could have been different. Esav is the forebearer of that belief system, that, type, that, that way of living. Rabbi Hirsch says that could have all stopped. If maybe these two these parents would have stopped and said, Wow, it's working for Isaac. <laughs> Let him keep on going to the study house. Something is not working for Asaph here. We have got to find a way to make Asaph successful. He's got energy. He's got, you know, he's full of life. He can go and be the hunter and bring back stuff and support his brothers learning, maybe. There's another relationship that we know of brothers, part of the twelve tribes where one brother worked and the other brother sat and learned 
And it was a it was a it was a contract that they had with each other. That one brother would do the business, he would be responsible for being out in the world and being a merchant and raising money, and the other brother would sit and learn. And it was a and it was a wonderful relationship with the two because they both realized I can be successful at this, and you can be successful at this, and we can share the final product of that. Um, that's obviously a lesson that um, that Jacob and Asa did not learn. Um, well, I should say Isaac and Rebecca didn't learn. Um, Jacob and Asa were just the products of, of the lack of focus by the parents. But um, I, I myself might not even suggest this because it's such a harsh criticism of our um, forefather, forefather and foremother. But Rabbi Hirsch certainly has the standing to suggest such a thing, and I think he is he is right on. Um, last two sources, and I think that these are um, very very important, um, and I, you know I'll end off with them because I think they really sort of summarize a lot of what we've been talking about. Source F: Yitzchak, that's Isaac, sorry, was willing to give Asab the brachot because he was unaware of how far Asab had turned from the true path, having not supervised Asab as he should have. That's a quote from the, the biblical text itself, that he did not supervise Asaph as he should have. Um, it, I, I think this can't be stated enough. Um, Dr. Pelkovitz mentioned it a little bit. Um, he talked about giving your child a hug metaphorically, actually, literally giving your child a hug. Spending time with children, and you know, I don't want to say anything that's too obvious, because then you think, <laughs> I knew that. What did he have to tell me that? I, I can't tell you the number of times children are in my office in trouble for something, and I start schmoozing with them. What's going on? How are things going? Um, and after three, four minutes, the child, the water gates open from the child's eyes, and it turns out their mom has not been home for three, four days. She went on a trip somewhere. It's not always for a bad thing. Sometimes it's for a family thing. Sometimes it's for business, and, they, and the child understands that their dad needs to go away for business. It's a fact of life, but it is such an overwhelming feeling for the child when their parents are not around that it manifests itself in how they act in school, how they act with their friends, and you just see them start to acting out. I have gotten journals from, from teachers or kids, um, you know, out of concern the teachers give them to me, and they say, you've got to see what you know, Shlomo is writing here in this journal. I'll open it up and I'll read it, and it just says, I wish my dad were around more often. I wish that when I came home, I could spend some more time with my mom. Um, and I've sat with those parents, and I've said, it doesn't have to be a world-changing event. You don't have to go on a fishing trip with your child. You don't have to go on, like, some excursion for a week with your child. You don't have to make it. Take them to the shopping, you know, the supermarket when you go. When you pick them up from a carpool, talk with them for a second. They're not interested at first. You know, they, you turn the radio down. You want to talk with them. Most of the time, they're like, can we just listen to music? I'm not. It, you know, take them to a sports game. Um, take a... Just do something of your mundane routine where you're spending time with them um, because that time will show them not only that you care because that's what Dr. Palkowitz was thinking, but I think it will give you an insight into what it is your children's temperament specifically is. You know, this, this, this is Rabbi um, Sarusk who writes Source F. He, he, he's, he's saying that um, you need to spend time with your children so that you can truly understand who they are. Because if you don't, you won't have that insight into what makes them succeed and what their weaknesses are. Um, and without that, how can you do anything but parent in one direction? But if you can truly understand the things that your child is good at, weak at, um, happy about and upset about, um, their temperament, are they angry, are they aggressive, are they quiet, are they you know, wallflowers? When you can understand that, then you can start to tailor your interactions with them and help their educational lives, their personal lives, to succeed by pushing them to succeed in that one particular area. So I, I think that that's something for us to remember. Um, and finally, and then at the end, I'll just sum up the four major points that I thought I was trying to make. Let's read this last source because it's something that I think uh, Dr. Jefferson may have heard this idea before. This is Dr. Jefferson. <laughs> it's something that I believe very passionately about. Um, so Jacob goes out from Beersheba, Beersheba, and he goes towards Haran, which is where his uh, next destination is, and he comes to a lighted place. This is the Jacob who's, who has seen the mistake his parents made. I mean, let's not... He, his, this is his brother Asaph. He still loves him. I mean, there's this love, you know, you're crazy. Uh, who knows what's going on there? But he, he has seen that the parents tried to bring up his brother in the same way as him, and it didn't work. 
and it didn't work to the tenth degree. His brother's now the most evil person in the world, you know, quote unquote. Um, and he comes to this place, um, and he tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in the place to sleep. So the Torah tells us that he takes, I'm not sure why at first from the seeming verse here, takes a stone and puts it under his head. It's like a moment. If you were taking something to put under your head for the evening of sleep, um, I'm not sure how many people would pick a stone. It's fairly hard and jagged. I think you might pick some grass. You make a pile of grass or some hay. I, I don't know what you take. I wouldn't take a stone. I would take, I'd probably rather sleep on the ground than with a stone. Um, and it highlights a very interesting idea which um, appears throughout the Torah, is that when, when the Jewish people are using a material, it's invariably stones. You go to Jerusalem now, um, and you look at the Beit HaMikdash, right? The, the, I'm blanking on the translation of it. The tabernacle. I mean, the, the whole, the, you know, the Kotel, the, the, the Western Wall. And you go there, it's stones. It's made of entirely of stones. Um, when Jacob goes and builds an altar later in his life, it's built of stones. He seems to focus, and the Jewish people seem to focus on using stones as a building material. On the other side, um, anyone aware of what the other nations use as a building material? Livanim, which means bricks. When the Egyptians were building their, their pyramids, they used bricks. When the Tower of Babel, the Babel, the Tower of Babel was being built, it was built with bricks. Livanim is the word that they focus on. And it brings up, it highlights an interesting question. Why, when the Jewish people use materials to build things, and for Jacob to lay his head on, he uses a stone, and we use stones, and the rest of the world uses bricks. And I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule, but when the Torah takes the time to highlight this for us, so, you know, it's subtle, but it's clear, it's clearly trying to send us a message. Um, and I think the message is actually um, a beautiful one that ties into all of this. Bricks are replaceable. Every brick, when you're building a building, has to be the same size. You know, you look up, um, this is a perfect example. They're exactly eight inches by two inches. They're a certain depth. They fit exactly. And if one brick doesn't work, you go and get another brick. But every brick has to be exactly the same size and has to fit exactly in the same mold. Because if it doesn't, it's of no use to us. You might as well take that brick. It's better than it be thrown out and, and just gotten rid of because it's got no place here. Stones are completely different. If you're building a building of stones, you look at the Western Wall, there are huge stones and there are small stones. There are squarish stones and there are round stones. Every stone is different. And in fact, you can't build a building with only big stones. If you have that, then you'll have these huge cracks in the middle because no stone is exactly the same. And they're all very unique in shape. You need lots of little stones. And you need some middle-sized stones. And you need some stones that are the foundation stones. And you need some stones that are the ones that are beautiful and, and crowned and are decorative. Now, that's an amazing message. We don't believe that life is about being a brick. We don't think that you need to fit some mold, that you need to get a certain score on some standardized test, that you need to drive this kind of car, that you need to go to this specific college to be a success. You don't need to get this specific grade. We think that however you are, if you find your place in the wall of the Jewish people, you're successful. Or in the wall of humanity, it doesn't have to be Judaism. That's the message of stones, that everybody, and if we can tell our kids this message, and we can internalize it ourselves, and instead of looking at the kid, oh man, you know, he's constantly embarrassing me in public, always screaming, always doing something crazy, every time I gotta go to school for parent-teachers conferences, sheesh, it's just awful. If we can move away from that and think, what does he or she contribute? What are his or her strengths that they bring to the table? How can we take those strengths and make them a part of of their community in school as educators, a part of our communities that we live in, they will learn that message and become very successful people. It's almost the secret, I think, that Judaism has here in the Torah, but it's a secret to raising our children, that if we can view our children as each unique stones, but that stones that are important. So yes, one is gonna have a 1500 on his SATs and go to an Ivy League school, Maybe the other one won't. Maybe the other one will I'll go to a you know, UT, a regular, whatever the college is, but will be a superstar leader in his synagogue. Or, you know, run, run some sort of chesed organization, taking care of sick individuals at a hospital. 
will have succeeded tremendously with our children. I think you see it in synagogue life all the time, is that there's a rabbi, so he's good at that thing. There's someone who sets up the kiddush for everybody. There's someone who reads the Torah. There's the person who writes the announcements. There's the person who makes sure that everybody has hospitality for that weekend. It's a great model for our children. And I think it's one that we need to make sure that we have in school for our children. That they see that they can be successful in a variety of areas. That there's not one area. That there's not one standard. There's not one brick. That if you don't fit into that 8 by 2 by 2 slot, we get rid of you. They actually say that on the Tower of Babel when they were building it. It's actually amazing. And I think it's, you know, I'll close with this and then just give you the four salient points. They said that when someone would fall off the scaffolding, what they would do is, because everyone, they, they didn't just see the material they were building with as replaceable. They saw the people who were building it as replaceable. They would just have everybody step up one line, one level on the scaffolding. Someone fell over. They just kept on working, and everyone moved up one level. That's how replaceable people were. The, the bricks weren't enough that they were replaceable. The bricks weren't enough that there was a stamp. Everybody was just able to move up because no one was, no one was any different from the next one. Um, and I think that that's sometimes how we too often view our children um, as parents and as teachers, that every student has to sort of fit into this mold and is the same, and if they don't meet the standard, they're somehow subpar. Um, so I'd encourage you to, to think of your children and to pass along that message that um, if we can see our children as unique and special and serving a purpose, um, they'll start to see themselves that way and become very successful. Um, so number one, I think it's important to be self-aware. Just recap it. We need to know what we think success is because that's how we're judging our children. So if our kid comes to us with that frog, we need to stop for a moment. Don't scream, get that out of here. Or maybe that's our natural inclination. When the kid comes back, say, honey, I just get, you know, that's just not my thing. But I'm really proud of you that you were able to get that frog. We have, but you can only do that if you're self-aware. If we realize what it is that we think success is. Um, so that's number one. Number two, identify strengths and weaknesses of our kids and help them to play to them and cultivate them, right? Um, that was the micro-macro level. That was the story I told about the girl with the notes. See what it is they're good at. Where are they successful? And see if you can apply it to a larger question. You know, even the kids who are not successful at all, they're going to be good at something. Maybe they're great at video games. That's okay. Figure out how to take that strength and make it Make them feel good about themselves. Make it be, be a building block. Is there a way to have video games for them when it comes to some other subjects? Is there a way to give them more learning through experiential learning? So sure, they're not doing great in their class, but maybe if you took them out to a biology field trip, they'll do well. And you know what? Encourage that. That's okay so the child isn't doing so well in the classroom. Look how well you did on that field trip. You know something? You might get a C, but I love you. I think you're great, and I think you're going to be successful when it comes to choosing your own path in life. That's an important piece to tell them. Uh, involved with our kids so we can identify their specific temperament. You know, I think Dr. Felkovitz is right. We need to be involved with our kids because it shows them that we love them and when a child feels loved, they typically succeed more than a child who doesn't. But I think it's important for us to be involved in our children's lives so we can identify what they're good at and what they're not good at and help them to cultivate the things they're good at and, you know, work a little bit on the things they're not so good at. But give them success. Um, and finally, um, teach our kids that everyone has a role. And that's the bricks and stones. Teach our kids that no matter who you are, no matter what you're good at or not good at, you can find a place to succeed. And if we can teach our kids that, um, I think there's no reason that they're not going to thrive um, and succeed in, in an area of their choosing when they grow up. So, um, you have any questions? I'm happy to answer them. Yes. Yes. You mean the school students? Well, it's something we are, in my two and a half years, this has been a goal of mine. We, we already had, when I came, a special education department. Um, I, I believe it's the only comprehensive one in the Jewish schools. Um, it's still not good enough. We added a gifted program because this applies to the other end of the spectrum. Um, we work not only with pulling students out in, into their sort of into the special ed area, we work bringing the special education arena into the regular classrooms to make sure that teachers are aware. You know, you have students in your class who need more of this or need more of that. And I can't say that. I don't know of a special ed program that has been 100% successful in the country. 
Same thing, you know, it's again, and this is what I said before. I'm, when I have a kid come into my office, I think it's the natural inclination, of, maybe it's because we've been trained this way by the educators in our lives, to get somebody in trouble. All right, let me, what, what'd you do again? Okay, let me check the handbook. Let me see what your consequence is. I can't believe you did this. This is the fourth time I've seen you, you know. What about tracking behaviors? Where does a child, our, new, our, our behavior referral form, used to just be name, what they did, signature from the teacher. And I said, well, you've totally taken that out of context. What if every day the child is getting in trouble, it's right before gym class, and the child, you know, it turns out, and this happened all the time when I was growing up, now nobody does shirts and skins where the kids have to play with their shirts off, but there was always a kid who didn't want to play with his shirt off, or we'd go swimming, and they'd have to force every kid to go swimming, and the kid wouldn't want to go, and everyone would assume, oh, the kid just, kid's just being, you know, it's just responding because they, they're trying to be difficult. And if you sat and talked with the kid, it turned out, I don't want to take my shirt off. I don't want to, you know, I'm embarrassed. I'm not good at basketball. Every time I play at the, the next period, kids make fun of me. Um, I don't need to be bullied or picked on. And, um, so we've started to try to identify through this form. And this is just one component. <coughs> Sorry. What's going on? Where is it going on? Why is it going on? What are the surrounding factors to what's going on? That's just a small component. But that's the direction that we're headed. Helping to see, to, it, it's obvious now. Kids don't act out without a stimulus. There's a reason that children are having, you know, they're, they're trying to send us a message as parents and as educators. Something's not right here for me. I think there are times where a kid is just a behavioral issue and sometimes it requires medication, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it requires behavioral therapy. But in the general sense, kids are just, there's something going on there. So when I sit with a kid, my initial response is not. What'd you do? Let's check the book. This is your consequence. You have in-school detention. You have. What, what, tell me what's going on here, because I every kid wants positive reinforcement. This is not positive reinforcement to be sent to my office. What what what, what is going on? What what's happening? What has changed in the last week? Because teachers are saying to me that you're having a rough time sitting in class or playing at recess with other people. If you give a child a chance to speak and to say what's on their mind, they will invariably tell you something's going on that's making it uncomfortable for them. And they're trying to respond. So those are more behavioral issues. But I think it's, I think it's across the board. Now, I, again, I don't, and I don't believe that every kid can get an A in every class. And I don't think we should expect that. Because there are some kids who, it's just not their thing, but I, you know, They'll get a B. They'll get a, they'll get a C plus. I don't think we settle for it. I think we push a kid until they get to the top of where they can get to, and maybe just beyond. You're like trying, you know. But I think we often push our kids too hard because we have this vision that they all need to get A's because A is excellent. It's not excellent for every kid. Excellence can be in a different area. I have kids who are not A students. I don't want to say what their grade point averages are, but they're not A students. They are the best kids in the school. They're the ones delivering food to a homeless shelter. They're the ones who I can count on when I need something set up for the school. We're having a program. They're running around setting up the sound system. And I guarantee you, these kids will be running their own business. Some fancy, you know, audiovisual equipment, computer technology, or one of them is going to be running a, you know, a home for a battered shelter home or a special program for, you know, feeding people who don't who don't have food. I think. That's sort of where we need to envision our kids. I don't think it means we give up educationally. Like I said, there's the micro level, finding ways in the classroom for the kid to be successful. But I think the more significant one is the macro level, finding places for our kids to be successful, not ways in the classroom only. Because I think that's, the, that's in vogue with schools now. Visual learners will have group learning, will have self, you know, kids teaching each other, contained classrooms, which I think are all important. We're, that's what we're, we're working on also. But I think... If we want our kids to be truly successful, we need to view it on this macro level of how do we get children to be successful at something they, they feel good about. Um, and it's hard because we live in a society where you know everything's a standard. What you get in your SATs? What do you get in your APs? Which college did you get into? And all, you know, these kids and parents judge success by the name on the letterhead. You know, on the college letterhead, on the law firm letterhead, on the, you know, which car is the person driving? And I don't, I don't think we can run away completely from it. That's our society. 
But on the other hand, I do think that we have a different model that we can give to our children that can help them be successful. You know, in Judaism, the, the, they say, the Talmud discusses, what are the questions going to be in the afterworld? What are, they, what are, what are we going to be asked? Um, and it's interesting. They say, um, the three questions we'll be asked are, did you deal honestly in business? Did you set aside time to learn? Um, did you deal honestly in business? Set aside time to learn Torah. I don't remember what the third one is. I apologize. But they're all the same type of thing. They're not some objective standard. Did you set aside time to learn Torah? It doesn't say, did you master all the books of the Bible? Did you read everything? Are you, are you brilliant? Or... No, did you try? Did you set aside time for yourself? I don't care how much you learn. Did you learn a page? Did you learn a hundred pages? Did you learn a million pages? There's no standard objectively of what you did. Did you deal honestly in business? Not how many deals did you make? Not how much money did you earn? Not even how much charity did you give? Did you try your best in a given situation to do what's right? If Can you imagine if that's how our kids would judge themselves? As opposed to feeling awful about themselves every time they didn't meet the standard, quote-unquote, that they're taught about in society, that we set for them also. We're setting them up to fail in some sense sometimes. If we could get them in some arena in their life to just feel that by trying, they're succeeding, by doing their part, doing what they're capable of doing, they're successful, I think we'd have a much happier group of children um, than we currently have. So, yeah. Who? Like, uh, like, uh, yeah, yeah, Asa, exactly. Yeah, unlike Jacob, he has high spirit. He does. He should not emigrate. Like you said, the history would have been changed. Would have been changed. Amazing, so right? Like teachers and parents, we are neglecting a lot of children right now. I get it. If would have been given the proper encouragement at the right time, right. they will find a place on the wall as a stone. As a stone. It's unbelievable. I get goosebumps every time I think about it because it's true. Um, I see in our school, and I think it, it's not, if it's in my school, it's in every school. There are children who are full of energy and full of life, and they're just, and our model doesn't fit that right away. I mean, we're, we're changing that in our school, but I think it, it, we need a sea change in the world. And it's been happening for thousands of years. This isn't, you know, and, and if, if someone would have caught Asaph at the right time, can you imagine if he had the right teacher? We said, come over, come over here, he said, let's go hunting together. And then when he went hunting, he talked about life and how to be sensitive to people and animals. But at the same time, we need food. So here's the right way to do it. Here's the right way to harness your energy and your charisma and your, you know, strength. We've had Jewish warriors throughout history. David, King David, was a warrior. He was also a poet. Someone sat with him and said, you can be a warrior and you can do it for the right cause. Here's how to harness your energy and your passion in a way that's productive. You can be, you know, on the wall. Had someone done that for Asa, history could have been very different. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to think about. So thank you for coming. You don't have to clap. It's a small group. <laughs> thank you so, so much. Um, and enjoy your next classes. You have quite a lineup of speakers to choose from. My goodness. I can't believe you came here. There are the two speakers who are speaking. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks so thank much. you. Sure.